0: Warning! Warning!
1: Today's episode contains...
2: Spoilers!
1: So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you.
0: Holy interview, citizen! Hi, this is Burt Ward, Robin from the TV
2: series Batman. You're listening to Then Is Now podcast. Wowie Zowie, citizens! What kind of a sick school is this? Uh-oh, Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. You're really gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me sure. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty do you? How you doing, back off,
0: man? I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry.
2: Say hello to my little friend! I love to smell a grape in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I've got a
0: crap on Dad. that you joke not donkey.
2: Who is your daddy?
1: I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that.
2: Can I do that?
1: I'll be back.
2: A dino man! Show me the money!
0: Don't! Up your nose will you ever hold A what?
2: I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy.
0: You you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry.
2: It is looking at you,
0: kid. We got no food! we got no jobs, our pets' heads are falling off!
2: Go to the coast, we we'll get together, have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey! I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is, if
0: we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do?
2: Um, put it up to 11. 11,
1: exactly. One loud. Why don't you just make 10 louder, and make 10 be the top number, and make that a
2: little louder. These go to 11. We are on a mission from God.
1: Hello and welcome to another amazing episode of the Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. Last time my new guest co-host Lucas from Denmark was here, we discussed the classic Hollywood film American Graffiti. We had fun exploring that film, not only because Lucas is from Denmark, but also because he's 19, and we like to get a young person's perspective on pop culture of the past. Today we have a film that was not only set in the 50s, it was filmed in the 50s, some 18 years prior to American Graffiti. I'm talking about Rebel Without a Cause from 1955, starring the iconic James Dean. This film not only continues to hold up, but it also resonates with young people in any era as James Dean's character Jim and his friend Judy try to deal with the fact that their parents are just inept at true parenting. This is one of those films that we hear then is now classified as one that you should see. So go ahead and watch Rebel Without a Cause, then come back here and listen to our breakdown of the film. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school in a day like this? Food fight!
0: Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to Shaw class. woo Now, now, very few students are severely injured in
2: Shaw class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick.
0: I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell rings and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and
2: stupid is no way to go through life, son.
0: You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades, or
1: gold stars, or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo!
0: Go, play, and have fun now.
1: Okay folks, today I am once again joined by frequent guest co-host Lucas. How are you doing today Lucas? I'm doing great and thanks for having me on. Glad to have you back. I'm so excited to talk about this film today.
3: Uh, Yeah, I watched it with my dad since um, I had actually watched it uh, previously, but I haven't had the chance to watch it in, in a while since it's not really on any streaming services here in Denmark, sadly.
1: But you were able to get to see it again?
3: yes yes I did
1: great great Um, Lucas and I today are going to discuss the classic and iconic picture rebel without a cause from 1955 which is James Dean's third and sadly his last feature film so uh, his last feature film as a lead I should say
2: all those parties turn into it's no place for kids
3: a minute ago you said you didn't care if he drinks he said a
0: little drink you're tearing me apart what you you say one thing he says another and everybody changes back again girls don't love their father since when since i got to be 16. stop that i love you jim I really mean it.
3: No. No, I don't
0: want you to go to the police. There were other people. Why should you be the only one involved? But I am involved. We are all involved. Mom, a boy, a kid was killed tonight. <laughs> this is all going too fast you for me, You better give
1: son. me something. You better give me something fast.
0: Jimmy, you're because very I'm... young. A foolish decision now could wreck your whole life. In ten years, you'll never know this even happened. Dad, answer her. Stand up! <laughs> You want to kill your own father? <laughs> <laughs>
1: In Los Angeles, teenager Jim Stark is arrested and taken to the juvenile division of a police station for plain drunkenness. At the station, he meets John Plato Crawford, who was brought in for killing a litter of puppies, and Judy, who was brought in for a curfew violation. The three each separately reveal their innermost frustrations to the officers. All three of them suffer from problems at home. Jim feels betrayed and anguished by his constantly bickering parents, Frank and Carol, but even more so by his father's timid attitude and failure to stand up to Carol. The issues are further complicated by Frank's interfering mother. His frustrations are made manifest to Officer Ray Fremick when Jim is released into their custody. Judy is convinced that her father ignores her because she's no longer a little girl, so she dresses up in racy clothes to get attention, which only causes her father to call her a dirty tramp. Plato's father abandoned his family when he was a toddler, and his mother is often away from home, leaving Plato in the care of his housekeeper. On the way to his first day at Dawson High School, Jim again meets Judy and offers her a ride. Seemingly unimpressed by Jim at first, she declines and is instead picked up by her quote-unquote friends, a gang of delinquents led by Buzz Gunderson. Jim is shunned by the rest of the student body, but is befriended by Plato, who comes to idolize Jim as a father figure. After a field trip to the Griffith Observatory, Buzz provokes and challenges Jim to a knife fight. Jim beats Buzz in the knife fight, so to preserve his status as gang leader, Buzz suggests stealing some cars to have a chicken run at the seaside cliff. At home, Jim ambiguously asks his father for advice about defending one's honor in a dangerous situation, but Frank advises him against confrontation of any kind. That night, during the chicky run, Buzz plunges to his death when the strap on his jacket sleeve becomes entangled with his door latch lever, preventing him from exiting the car in time. As police approach, the gang flees, leaving Judy behind, but Jim patiently persuades her to leave with him and Plato. Jim later confides to his parents his involvement in the crash and considers turning himself in. When Carol declares they're moving again, Jim protests and pleads with Frank to stand up for him, but when Frank refuses, Jim attacks him in frustration, then storms off to the police station to confess. But he's turned away by the desk sergeant. Jim drives back home and finds Judy waiting for him. She apologizes for her prior treatment of him due to peer pressure and the two begin to fall in love. Agreeing that they will never return to their respective homes, Jim suggests that they visit an old deserted mansion near the observatory that Plato had told him about. Meanwhile, Plato is intercepted by three members of Buzz's gang who are convinced that Jim betrayed them to the police. They steal Plato's address book and go off after Jim. Plato retrieves his mother's gun and leaves to warn Jim and Judy, finding them at the mansion. The three new friends act out a fantasy as a family. Plato then falls asleep, and Jim and Judy leave to explore the mansion, where they share their first kiss. Buzz's gang find and wake up Plato, who, frightened and distraught, shoots and wounds one of the gang. When Jim returns, he attempts to restrain Plato, but he flees, accusing Jim of leaving him behind. Plato runs to the observatory and barricades himself inside as more police converge, including Fremick, who, with Frank and Carol, have been searching for Jim. Jim and Judy follow Plato into the observatory, where Jim persuades Plato to trade the gun for his red jacket. Jim quietly removes the ammunition before returning it, and then convinces Plato to come outside. But when the police notice that Plato still has the gun, they shoot him down as he charges them, unaware that Jim had removed the bullets. Frank comforts his grieving son, vowing to be a stronger father. Now reconciled to his parents, Jim introduces them to Judy. So, Lucas, first impressions. When did you first see this film?
3: Oh, um, that, that's kind of a tough question to answer, really, because I don't remember when it was. I remember uh, seeing it when I was younger, and, you know, my parents actually told me about, or my father told me about James Dean. But I, I'm, I'm thinking it was probably maybe 10 years ago, actually, when I was relatively relatively young where i I didn't really understand the movie but seeing it again i I, I do remember watching it in my like childhood home with my parents
1: (laughs) (laughs) nice nice yeah this is a a movie that i thought i had seen but i was wrong and i i hate to admit it but i've actually never seen it (laughs) it's such a classic and iconic film you know I, i guess i've seen clips of it over the years but i never really knew what it was about and i have to say walking into it it was completely different from what i expected
3: yeah I, I remember uh, like a, a few scenes of the movie, like for example, um, Plato getting shot and the the whole them in the mansion, you know talking about renting the place and stuff but but seeing it now in like my adult life it it, it really wasn't what I remember it being
1: right. Right, I would imagine sort of like American graffiti, which I had seen as a younger. And I had the same situation where I didn't really get it when I was a kid, but now it like makes all kinds of sense.
3: Yeah, uh, especially since like now I actually speak English and and like understand what they're saying, and, and also the fact that now I'm 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 grown up and and I can sort of analyze it and you know you you read between the lines even without them actually saying anything like just you know body language and and their facial expressions which you don't really get that as a, as a kid.
1: Right, right. So did you find that you could sort of relate to the characters?
3: Oh yeah. Um actually I I kind of relate to Jim in in the way that you know in the beginning when he's at the police station and and he's like I can't I can't go back to that circus and and you know you do like sort of dumb things, just like Jim, you know, he beat up a kid and they had to move and, and stuff. And, and he, I'm, I'm a bit hot headed and, and just like Jim and the situation that he finds himself in where he's talking to his dad for advice. And he says, you know, in 10 years, looking back on this, and he cuts him off and stuff. It's like 10 years is so far in the future. But I don't think that's what his dad meant uh, at all. I, I, I think he mean, he means to, to say the same sort of thing we said when we were talking about American graffiti, that adult problems compared to teenage problems, right? right. And, and, and I sort of relate to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The movie was directed by Nicholas Ray. Who had also done well. He would uh, later go on to do the movie Hair in '79, and he also directed Humphrey Bogart in A Lonely Place in a lot of. Um, I'm sorry, uh, it was an earlier. That was that was prior to Rebel Without a Cause. That was 1950. So he's done quite a few movies, but the big thing about him was that um, Nicholas Ray often took suggestions from the cast and crew, and he was open to them if it was a great idea. You know, he'd go with it. Like for example, the scene where Jim. Is kind of like right after the accident, he comes home and he's laying on the couch and he's kind of hanging his head off the side of the couch upside down and the camera's upside down. And then it does, as the mother's coming down the stairs, it does this 180 degree spin. So it it writes itself. Yeah. That was all uh, James Dean's idea because... Originally, the scene was supposed to take place in the parents' bedroom. And he just, for whatever reason, he didn't feel comfortable with it. And Nicholas Ray, the director, always wanted to make sure that James Dean was comfortable with what they were doing. So he literally had him come over to his apartment. They tried to act out the scene. And they did it in his living room. And James Dean was like, I love this. This is perfect. And that's where he came up with the idea. So Nicholas Ray actually had the crew... Make the set the living room set of the house look just like his apartment, so that James Dean was fully comfortable in it
3: i didn't uh, I didn't know that but I, I think that's a great idea to have your uh, or I- in any situation when you have people you know under your supervision and you're making a movie for example and you 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 need to have your uh, actors and actresses um, comfortable other like if you don't you you don't get the 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 best out of them i i don't think, anyways.
1: I agree. Yep, absolutely.
3: So I think that's a, a, a great thing that they did that. And I think it's a, it's a good scene, actually.
1: Oh, it's a very good scene. It's very powerful. The, the whole movie is very powerful. and um, You know, for even just walking into it, I had no idea. Like, I, can, I guess I kind of had a, uh, something of a preconceived notion that I thought James Dean's character was sort of like a, um, like a bad guy. I guess I, I really didn't know what to expect. And it turned out he was really nice and really cool.
3: Yeah, again, uh, just like we were talking about with American Graffiti, that, um, you know, he kind of changes throughout the movie or, like, tries to anyways. uh, In some ways, he doesn't really change all that much. But in other ways, he changes a lot. His character does anyway. Right.
1: And, you know, okay. so the movie was also written by uh, Nicholas Ray, as well as a guy named Irvin Shulman and another guy named Stuart Stern. And what Stewart did was um, he had a lot of input in this movie. He saw he kind of saw Nicholas Ray's vision. So, uh, for example, the whole thing with the planetarium, he could see how that had cosmic implications. That you know, um, uh, the the destruction and the uh, the destruction of the Earth and the universe would make the teenagers feel insignificant. And he was the one who kind of brought that together at the end of the film too, when they when they went to shoot there to show. How the in the grand scheme of things, the teenagers realized they were they were literally nothing, and it it, it kind of um, changed their viewpoint on things after seeing that show in the planetarium, wouldn't you say
3: uh, yeah, I think it kind of um, I think as as a teenager and you learn about the whole universe and how small Earth is in in comparison, and then you realize you compared to Earth is even smaller, and all your problems are irrelevant for the universe. The universe doesn't care about you or or, or your problems. So I think it definitely it, it had an effect on, on the characters.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And a couple other things that Stuart really contributed was he was really hard on his own parents. And that's sort of why the parents in this movie are sort of portrayed as incompetent. Because he was drawing from his own experience of his parents, I guess. So there's there's a lot of parallels there. And also, um, he had actually, for research, went to a real juvenile hall. So when they were, when they were in the police station in the juvenile section at the beginning, he based the set on where he had actually been. And actually some of the, um, some of the actions of the characters that were there, like the parents and stuff, were stuff that he had seen in real life.
3: I think that when you go out as a, a a director or, or, you know, a screenwriter or whatever, or even a journalist's, uh um... whatever Uh, I think if you go out and experience stuff you get a you get a sense of how it actually works and and you can make better content that way and uh, certainly it's it felt more real Uh, and I think based on uh, that uh, based on the fact that I now know that he went to juvenile juvenile hall and 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 you know based the the whole scene off of things he saw I think it kind of made it feel all the more real so I I think that's that's again a, a really nice touch
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's another um, it's another connector to uh, American Graffiti, where that was based on a lot of George Lucas's experiences or or some of his friends experiences, you know. So, like you said, it definitely adds a a very uh, big touch of realism to these these kinds of films.
3: Yeah, I think I think if you had uh, no idea how how a juvenile hall uh, actually worked or if George Lucas, uh, you know, just made up a story, I think. I think it would take something away from the movie. You know, the heart of the movie. It, 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 part of that is is really the 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 truth in what actually takes place.
1: Exactly, exactly. So of course, let's get into our cast here. And of course, we've got James Dean as Jim Stark. Um, again, this was um, he had only done three movies where he was the uh, featured character in it, and. Uh, he's remembered as a cultural icon of teenage disillusionment and social estrangement. And he actually, he died in a car crash a month before this movie re- was released. I think I think he died on like September 30th. And this movie was released on like October 27th, somewhere around there. Um, but after his death, he was the first actor to receive a posthumous Academy Award nomination for Best Actor. And he remains the only actor to have had two posthumous acting posthumous I'm sorry, I'm saying that word wrong. Posthumous, meaning after your death, acting nominations, um, as well as in 1999, the American Film Institute ranked him the 18th best male movie star of the golden age of Hollywood. So he had a lot of impact on people.
3: Definitely, I, I can see that. He's a, he, like, not just his character, which is also a very great character. I think uh, he's very interesting and has a lot of layers, but I think the actor James Dean himself is a very, very talented, or was a very talented actor, and he died way, way too early, sadly.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, one thing I found out that was really interesting was he was studying to be a director, and I guess when he was on the set of this movie, he had a lot of notebooks and stuff, and he was taking notes of what the director was doing, and he had been doing that right along, and he felt that ultimately his his real talent lay in directing, and that's what he really wanted to do. And and it's amazing because he's so unbelievably awesome in this movie. And then after he made this movie, he said he didn't think he could ever put that much energy into another character in another movie again. So I wonder if after this film, maybe he would have quit acting and just tried to do directing.
3: Yeah, you could... I, 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 uh... Yeah, I, I think he might have done that, but again you can speculate and, you know, theorize about what he might have done and And sadly, we never got to see it. I think if he went on to be a director, he could have he could have been like directing very, very good movies. And also, if he was just an actor, he would have had some great roles in in Hollywood. Definitely. And absolutely. And it's it's sad. We never got to see that, really. It really is.
1: I agree. I agree. And one interesting parallel I found out about his life, uh, a parallel to the movie here is that he actually was estranged from his father when he had changed his major in college to to drama. The father didn't like that, so I, I guess they um, they just didn't talk for quite a long time.
3: I guess you know it was a different time and all that. It was it was the fifties, right? And and yeah, and you know, drama. It has some, you know, I, I guess back then it had some connotations with it, you know, it being kind of like a feminine thing to do. But right. You, but like you can't really. I think even though it was a different time, it's it's wrong of people, especially parent parents, to to judge your your children that way.
1: Exactly. Well, and there was also the the notion that where people had that you are not going to make any money at it, so don't bother doing it. You know, do have something that you can make money at, like be a lawyer or a doctor or something.
3: Yeah, and I I, I kind of think that's an illogical thing to say that you know just because you want to be an actor doesn't mean you can do it. Like people do it all the time, and I don't mean you know become like the a, a humongous actor in Hollywood. I mean. You can do smaller things in life than being a Hollywood actor. You know, you you can you can do whatever with it. Like you know, you can even be like a drama teacher, or you know, it, it, there's there's many possibilities with uh, any uh, education you're you're doing. And I think it's I think it's an almost moronic thing to say that just because the chances are small, you shouldn't try. Because you know, if he hadn't tried, we wouldn't have seen him in in a uh, Rebel Without a Ca- Without a Cause.
1: Right. Right. The other two movies he was a lead character in were called East of Eden and Giant. And I have to say, I don't think I've seen those either. I've seen clips of them, but.
0: Shame. Shame. Shame.
1: Uh, we're going to have to add those to the list for the future because he, he was so good in this. I was totally impressed.
3: Yeah, I was definitely impressed, too. Actually, uh, one quick thing. I, I, I was reading about it yesterday, a few, like, smaller, like, facts about it. And, and one of the things were, like, um, that he only got cast as Jim because Elizabeth Taylor became pregnant all of a sudden. And, and uh, the, the directors or whatever saw him in East of Eden and liked him very much. And then all of a sudden he was just Jim in, in Rebel Without a Cause.
1: Oh, that's interesting. That's so cool.
3: Yeah. I, I like, I knew nothing about the movie, I have to say. And, and, you know, I, I, I knew about the movie and I, I knew about James Dean and all that, but I, I, I'd not really, you know, taken the time to look into it. And I think that's the good thing about this podcast, especially with American graffiti and this one, since that's the only two episodes we're doing and or for now. Anyways. So far. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, it, you know, it's, I think it's good that that I, I get the chance to you know look into it and have the uh, opportunity to tell other people about it. With you, of course, I'm not the only one doing it. So.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, that's the whole point is to to get the word out out there. You know, this is this is the stuff that the kids today should be watching as well as whatever they're watching today. You know, this is classic and it, it's timely. I mean, the whole the whole thing about the teenagers and not being able to communicate well with their parents. That works in any decade. It doesn't matter if it was the 1950s. You watch this today, and it still holds up, and it's still relevant.
3: Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, family issues has always been a thing, and I'm betting it will always, forever and always, be a thing. Right. But uh, actually, another thing I I read about the movie was that um, in the 50s, when you had, like, uh, crime movies or whatever, uh, or not really crime, but having... Uh, criminal activities in a in a movie with teenagers they they would usually come from low income uh, families, and th- this was one of the first movies where that wasn't actually the thing. The thing that drove them to do the the to do these crazy things was that they were kind of bored being in a like a, a middle class family and and you know they were so frustrated with their parents so they so they went out of the way to be you know rebels and. That was like a it was like the forefront of, of a teen crime movie, whatever, back in, in the 50s. And it was like the first movie to ever do it. And I found that really interesting because nowadays you see it often that, you know, they don't have to be poor to be criminal you know, right. criminals. You can, you can it can be anyone.
1: Right. Absolutely. And I think we kind of touched upon that point in American Graffiti where. You know, up until World War II, you had to go to work at a relatively young age, like sometimes as low as 12. So you didn't have time to be a kid for very long, and then you were off to work, and that was it. But after the war, because the economy was so affluent, you the kids didn't have to go to work. So then all of a sudden we had this thing called teenagers where— you got people between the age of twelve and twenty one that have all this free time on their hands, so of course they're gonna get in trouble if they're hanging around because they got nothing better to do, you know
3: yeah and and I think that's especially since this movie uh takes place before American graffiti does I think the the whole uh point of of them being teenagers was uh, much stronger for people back then since there was uh fifty five
1: right and speaking of delinquency and delinquence, um Natalie Wood, who played Judy. She was a child actress up till this movie, and she she really wanted this role because she wanted to get out of that child actor mode and start playing more adult stuff. So she pestered the director for over a month to get the role. And to the point where, like, he, I guess he had said he really wanted to cast someone who was actually more of a delinquent in real life. So she started to act like one just so he would notice her, and of course he did. What's interesting is uh, the two of them ended up having an affair on the set, and she was really young; she was like 17. But she did actually become a serious adult actress because of this. And I don't know if you, if how much you know about Natalie Wood, but she was um, she was married to another famous actor called named Robert Wagner, and them two and uh, another actor named Christopher Walken were on a boat back in I think it was in the 90s. It might have been in the 2000s and something happened and she she disappeared and she turned out she'd gotten hit on the head and they found her body floating like far away. But they ruled it as an accident because the the way it was situated was they all thought she went to bed and they think she might have been trying to tie like they had a large boat. But then if you wanted to go to shore, you, you got into a smaller boat and the smaller boat was banging against the side of the big boat. So apparently she went to tie it off. And you know, one of the masts or something came down and hit her in the head and knocked her in the water. So they found the little boat somewhere one way, and they found her body another way. And you know, I think people over the years have been trying to say it was murder, and everyone that was there was like, no, it it had to have been an accident because we weren't even there. We thought she went to bed, you know. But it, it ultimately it's still a tragedy.
3: Yeah, of course, it's still a tragedy if it's murder or an accident or whatever. But but yeah, I had heard of it. Like uh, I I knew of um, I knew of it because of uh, Christopher Walken. I, okay. I had read, like read about it. I didn't know any of the the like smaller details that you you told me or not smaller but any of the details. I just knew you know she uh, quote unquote disappeared and ended up dead.
1: Yeah, yeah, I read about that actually in Robert Wagner's uh, autobiography, which is a really good book by the way. I forget the name of it off the top of my head.
0: Hey, can- and kittens do you remember the 50s jukeboxes hot
2: rods malt shops and sock hops no not really oh well do you remember that tv show happy days you know fonzie and richie and all like that a sit on it etc kind of then join us for these days are ours a happy days podcast where we watch every episode and give you the lowdown on what it all means Find us at thesedaysareours.libsyn.com and follow us on Twitter at Fonzie Podcast. Be there or be square.
0: You're sure you don't remember sock hops? Sorry, no. Okay, then.
1: Hey, folks. I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts. Podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process. And in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them. And I kid you not, within minutes, I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at podcast upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on PodParadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, PodParadise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodSurf's pricing is simple, only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get... Unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder on my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I... I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcast on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend PodServe.fm. Check them out. Um, so let's move on to uh, our third actor here, Salminio, who played Plato. Apparently, he had a Bronx accent that was um, really severe. So there were moments in the movie where they had to go back and have him redub some of his dialogue, so that he didn't sound quite like he came right out of New York, you know?
3: <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think it was a good thing that they did that, seeing as like he he. He looks really young and it would have been kind of weird seeing him in, in you know, a suburb sounding like he came straight out of New York. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> he got nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this. And he was the fifth youngest nominee in the category at the time. He was also in Giant. He was in a, another movie called Exodus where he got a Golden Globe for that. And he also got a second Academy Award nomination for The Longest Day. And he's another one that had a tragic ending. Apparently, and I don't know the details of this. All I know is that he was murdered in the parking lot of his apartment complex at age 37.
3: Holy. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. I thought he was still alive. That's really sad, actually.
1: Yeah, it's very sad.
3: That's uh, the curse of Rebel Without a Cause, apparently.
1: I guess so, yeah.
3: <laughs> that's, uh, that's really tragic. Oh, man. All three uh, leads, I guess, or whatever you could call them. Right, character.
1: met with a tragic ending in real life, yeah. So, on a lighter note, we had Jim Backus, who played Frank Stark, Jim's father, and, you know, he was always doing co- comic or comedic roles, and he wanted this role, uh, he was hoping that this role would help break him out of that mold, uh, which it really didn't, although he was great in this, but he's, he's probably best known, and, and uh, Lucas, tell me if you know these ones, he was the voice of uh, the cartoon character Mr. Magoo, the little guy that's hard of seeing,
3: I know who, uh, who it is. I, I don't I, I don't know where I know it from, but I know who it is. Yeah.
1: OK. They made a movie with it uh, with um, Leslie Nielsen a few years ago about Mr. Magoo. Um, but he's yeah, he a famous cartoon character for many years. And uh, Jim Backus also played Thurston Howell III on the TV show Gilligan's Island. Did you guys get to watch Gilligan's Island over there?
3: I don't think it was uh, like a big hit over here, but I I'm pretty sure we had it seeing as, you know, it's, we're still a part of the Western world, believe it, believe it or not. Right? <laughs> but, but I, I think we have it, but I don't, I've never seen it. I know what it is, Gilligan's Island, but I, I don't know. Oh, man. I don't think I've ever seen it it's sadly.
1: One of my favorite comedies. If you get a chance to seek it out, it's so good. It's just hilarious. It's a, it's basically the seven castaways end up on this deserted Island And every time they think they have a chance to get off, Gilligan does something to screw it up. And they're, you know, at the end, they're still stranded on the island. (laughs) All
3: right. That sounds like something I would uh, definitely be into watching. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So we had Anne Duran, who played Carol Stark, Jim's mother. Apparently, she did not enjoy playing this role. And I couldn't find a specific reason why. But I get the feeling that it was just because her character was just so cold. I think... She didn't want to play that sort of a part, but she did it, you know, for the money.
3: I think I think she did a great job. Uh, I think the character, you know, she conveys a a very good message that, you know, not all parents are like that, like really care as much about you as as they should. Seeing as, you know, as Jim says in the movie, I'm not going to say too much but he says that like he, she always blames him or someone else for her problems and right. and you know some parents do that some people do that it doesn't have to be parents and i think that was uh she did a really great job though i didn't like his mother at all i right. think uh, i'm not i'm not going to say the word but she is a uh, yeah
1: <laughs> the b uh, yeah. word <laughs>
3: I, but uh, just uh, on a quick note, I, I really liked his father. I really think he did a great job as well. I think he was a really, really great actor in, in that role. Yeah. And also, the, the character in general, he, like he's kind of funny, but also kind of sad.
1: Yeah, because he, he's weak. He's henpecked. He's He just can't stand up to her to the point where he's almost feminized because, you know, he's wearing her apron trying and and he's terrified when he drops the food on the floor he's terrified that she's going to find out that he did that
3: yeah and jim said t- tells him like he he like raises his voice and sounds really angry he's like leave it and it, it like i kind of cringed when i watched that because you know this teenage boy is telling him you know be a man you know don't don't let let her walk all over you and and he just doesn't care or right. i don't know if he doesn't care i think he cares but i think I think he's too scared to do anything.
1: Right, right. He was. He was terrified. And it's
3: a, yeah, exactly. And I think it's a, of course, it's a tough position to be in. To you know, have to choose between standing up to your your wife to to prove you're a man to your son or let your son down. I think that's a super tough to, like place to be in. Absolutely. Like, or position to be put in by your own son.
1: Right. Right. So let's just quickly go through the rest of the cast here. Uh, we've got Corey Allen, who played Buzz Gunderson. He's the one who goes over the cliff. Apparently, I found out that he would scream at the top of his lungs before he would do a scene because he was afraid that his voice wasn't manly enough for the character. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's a that, that's a funny detail, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: Then we got William Hopper, who played Judy's father. And I remember him from the, the Ray Harryhausen movie, 20 Million Miles to Earth, which was a really good movie uh Rochelle Hus- I'm sorry Rochelle Hudson played Judy's mother and she was in a couple of movies Born Reckless and Imitation of Life now the guy who played Ray Fremick was Edward Platt did you ever see the TV show Get Smart
3: No I don't I I have never heard of it actually
1: Okay it's a spy comedy from the 60s and he played the chief in that and it was basically the main character was named Maxwell Smart he was agent uh, 86 and he was just this bumbling spy Couldn't get anything done right. But no matter what, in the end, he always, you know, saved the day. And um, Edward Platt was his long-suffering chief who was in charge of the the good guy organization named Control. So it's funny. When he came on the screen, I'm like, oh, my God, it's the chief. And then Jim comes into the room. And uh, uh, right at the beginning, he tries to punch him in the face. And the chief, I keep calling him the chief, he just grabbed him and dropped him to the floor like he was nothing. And I was like, way to go, chief. That's why you're in charge of control, you know? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I like the, the the line he has afterwards. He's like, it's a shame you didn't connect, like sounding yeah. like a badass. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just looked at him and I was like, yeah, this is – This is definitely the (laughs) fifties. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And I just loved his character here. I I loved the fact that he just, he understood that the kids were having trouble and he was trying to get it out of him. And he, he almost became sort of a father figure to Jim.
3: Oh, definitely. I I actually have a note here where um, he tells him that, you know, he should come back to him. uh, If he ever feels like he's about to get in trouble, he should come back to him. And he does that in the movie. He tries to, you know, talk to Ray and, and, or like get him, but he was just sent away. And I think like he's a he's one of the characters in the movie that you know you feel he actually cares, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. And he's he's in control, and he's a real man, unlike unlike Jim's father, who is not. He's just a, a weakling.
3: Yeah. Also, there's like this kind of you know there's a there's a contrast between him and his father in the way that you know Jim just like like uh, was like throws his dad on the chair and like kind of like tries to choke him. Yeah. Where like he would never have gotten that chance on the on the the, the police officer, officer Ray because right. like he would just have dropped him right he would have socked him on the jaw oh yeah
2: like
3: <laughs> yeah and I I think that that's kind of why you know Jim calms down afterwards like showing that like he he kind of shows Jim you know not all men are are I'm not gonna say pathetic but as weak as your right. father
1: yeah exactly
3: or as Jim's father uh and I think that's a like. I think that's a uh, you know watching the whole movie and, and looking back on that scene i I think that kind of shows Jim that you know you don't have to to just take it while lying down you know you can be a man, stand up for yourself right
1: exactly, exactly, and it's really too bad later on in the film like before he went to do the 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 um the chickie run, if he had gone to uh, to Ray right away, he probably could have solved all his problems, but he didn't do that yeah.
3: Or if if Jim's dad wasn't, you know, telling him, yeah, we have to think this through, you know, make a list. Right. And if he if he if he would have just, you know, done what Ray would have done and told him, you know, you stay in fucking bed right now. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like you, you're not gonna go do some some stupid crap like that. You're gonna you're gonna stay home, young man. Right. Oh, if yeah. he would have done that, I, I think I I definitely think Jim would have you know listened to him. If you like, if he stood up to him, like put his foot down, I think he would have like the movie would have been completely different.
1: Oh yeah, and I think that's what Jim was looking for. He wanted his father to tell him not to go, and yeah, and he and couldn't uh, get him to do it.
3: Yeah, exactly. And and you know, the, he kind of like trying to goad him into doing uh, like saying it because he's like, you can't force me to stay home, kind of. Right. And, and you know, right. he's just a teenager. What is he gonna do? His dad could like just tell him not to like do it lock his lock his door right and yeah. he he could have forced him to stay home if he wanted to but he didn't he just he ran out of like he ran out on on his father and and you know of course he like chases after him and he waits up for him later and he comes back home and they were genuinely worried for him but
2: they didn't you know, know what to do it,
3: it, yeah exactly they they were like of course his mother seemed like she doesn't you know, like didn't care at all but his father was like all right, uh, wh- what am I going to do here?
1: Right, exactly. So real quick, there's just a couple more actors I wanted to mention. Um, Frank Mazzola played the character of Crunch. He was one of the, the main gang members. He was kind of the second in command to Buzz. And apparently in real life, he was a real-life gang member. He was part of a gang called the Athenians. And so they hired him initially to be a gang consultant on the movie, and ended up being one of the actors because they liked him so much, and they thought he looked the part, you know, and which, because he was.
3: <laughs> yeah, th- I, that's actually a nice detail, and I, I think uh, I think it was a like a, a nice move to you know actually hire a real life gang member to play a gang member.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was so cool. So there's two other actors, and I want to know if you know who they are or if you recognize them. Uh, the first one was Dennis Hopper. And he played goon. Did you recognize him in the movie?
3: No, I don't think so.
1: He's wicked young here. He was in the movies. Uh, he was in tons of movies, but I'll just list a couple. He was in Easy Rider. He was. Oh, in, I know that one. He was in Speed. Did you see that with Keanu Reeves? Oh
3: uh, yeah, yeah. He, he yeah. was
1: the villain in that movie.
3: Oh oh that, okay, <laughs> that's <laughs> he, a that's a pretty big step, I think, being in yeah? a movie with Keanu Reeves. Oh that's, yeah, that's really cool.
1: He was um, he was Frank Booth in the movie Blue Velvet by David Lynch. And, I don't know that one. Okay, and he was also the villain in Waterworld with Kevin Costner. I don't know if you saw that one.
3: I'm pretty sure I've seen that. I've seen a lot of Kevin Costner movies.
1: Okay. De- De- Dennis Hopper's always been one of my favorites. I mean, he was on The Twilight Zone. He was on so many TV shows and movies throughout the years. It's unbelievable. You know, we could do a whole show on him. So he was great. And then one of the other actors was a, a sort of a, a skinny blonde guy named Nick Adams. He played Chick. Uh, TV uh, audiences in America probably remember him as Johnny Yuma from the series The Rebel, which was in 1959. And he was in a few um, horror movies, Um, some of my favorite monster movies, actually. He was in Invasion of the Astro Monsters, Frankenstein Conquers the World, and Die, Monster, Die with Boris Karloff. Um, I think he met a tragic ending, too, but I think his was uh, drug overdose related.
3: That's just, uh, again, the the rebel without a cause curse strikes once more.
1: Right, yeah. (laughs) So it's really too bad. But you know what's funny? And I, I haven't really, I hadn't actually thought about this till you and I just started talking about it, but there's so many parallels to American Graffiti. Like this movie, with the exception of the opening scene, it takes place in a, over a 24-hour period, which was similar yeah. to American Graffiti.
3: I realized that actually, as you know, the, the, the ending where they like drive off from the planetarium where, you know, you see the sunrise, like it's light outside again. And I realized this took place in one one day. Yeah, like it was his first day of school, <laughs> which made like it, it kind of made the whole movie a little bit weird. I I think because uh, the whole thing with uh, Buzz, you know, dying and then all of a sudden, every like everyone's just like so calm about it. And, and right, he like Jim hits on Judy, and I'm like, that's a bold move, man. <laughs> <laughs> Buzz just died. She watched him go over the cliff. Right, and you're just hitting on her. <laughs> Well, and what was funny was the
1: part where they kissed in the mansion, my wife turns to me, she goes, oh, yeah, because your boyfriend just died three hours ago, but you're over it now.
3: Yeah, I, I told that to my dad. I literally said that. I was like, yeah, OK, your, your boyfriend just died. Yeah, just, you know, move on. It's right. That was that was a few hours ago.
1: You know, it's funny. Uh, you mentioned the end scene the, in the very, very end as the camera's pulling away and we see the, the observatory, the planetarium, whatever you want to call it. There's a dude walking towards the building, carrying a briefcase. And you assume he's going to work because now it's the next day. And that's actually the director inserting himself into the movie.
3: <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's really cool. That's kind of like a Stan Lee mo, mo, uh, uh, moment. I right, mean.
1: <laughs> right. Or Alfred Hitchcock.
3: Yeah, that, that's it. That, that's actually, that, I didn't, I didn't know that. That's, that's pretty cool. That's yeah. Like, I think, I think the way they do that is kind of a, Especially when when you look at someone like Stanley, for example, just going off topic real quick, like okay. uh, looking at Stanley, it's a good way to like immortalize yourself without you know just having your name in the like in the credits.
1: oh yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's just too bad Stanley's past, but I wonder if they'll do stuff like have a picture of him on the wall somewhere.
3: Or... Oh, yeah, I'll bet. I, I bet they'll do that, you know, just to keep his like legacy alive. Right? Yeah, you, you know, like he's the creator of so many superheroes. So why not, you know, keep him in the movies?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So the opening se- sequence where um, Jim is on the ground drunk, that wasn't the original opening scene. It was supposed to open with a group of delinquents mugging a guy who ends up dropping all his Easter presents all over the ground. And that's where Jim comes in and stumbles down. And that's why he found that little toy monkey. Because that was left over from, you know, the guy getting mugged, but I guess they, they thought it was too violent. The censors didn't like that, so they had to cut that out.
3: I think that's, uh, like, a bit of a shame because I, I thought it was kind of weird. Like, I, I thought I had, like, apparently, like, maybe skipped, like, a minute ahead. Right. Because I was like, why is he lying on the ground cuddling up to this, this monkey?
1: yeah (laughs) and all that drunken behavior that he did was improv he totally made up all that like what he was doing he he was the one that came up with it i think they just said okay act drunk and that like even like imitating the police siren and all that he that was all james dean
3: yeah i I thought like i i when i was watching it i was i i I genuinely thought that he might have been drunk just because i I could see myself doing that sort of thing you know (laughs) being like really blasted i was like right could I could could I have done that? Right, I think I've even been there myself sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> there's oh, oh, there's this a uh, great line from uh, Jim's dad when they come into the station and, and he looks at a like she's like his mother is like why why do you behave like this and he like his dad looks at her it's like he's just loaded honey
1: yeah <laughs> like it's no big deal <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think that's really great I I think that's a that's a really good line for for like a dad to say that right
1: which is funny because it makes you think oh he's a cool dad you know he's he understands that all right yeah you made a mistake you got drunk in public but it happens but then he you know r- real quickly after that you find out that he's just a spineless nerd or not even a nerd he's just a spineless you know weakling
3: yeah and and you know in the beginning when he was like talking to the officer ray there and and I, he was like talking about his dad I, And the way he like talks about it, I was like, he doesn't sound like your dad. He sounds like a cool uncle, I guess. And yeah, him Jimbo and and stuff like that. I'm like, that doesn't sound like something your dad would do and just come into the station. Like, oh, he's just loaded. Right. (laughs) Like my dad would have been furious (laughs) if if that happened to me. But yeah, you know, and then again, as you said, you find out he's just a coward, really.
1: Right. What I liked about Jim, though, here at the beginning is um, when he's trying to give Plato his coat, he doesn't even know him. But it just showed that he had a good heart, you know. Right away, you get the se- even though he's drunk, you get the sense that he's a good character, you know.
3: I think Plato says it himself uh, the best, actually, when he when he talks about, talks to Judy when she asks him uh, like uh, if they know each other and stuff, uh, and he says, you know, he doesn't say much, but when he does, he's sincere. He means it, and and I think that kind of like put like he says it the best, I think, because you know I, that's the feeling I got like. He actually cares. He seems like a he seems like an actually good guy, and he's trying to change here.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing too. Is like, and especially the crime that he committed was so heinous. I mean, he shot puppies. What this? Is, it doesn't get much worse than that. I mean, I suppose it can, but that's pretty bad. So right away, you're thinking, well, how am I supposed to feel about this character? But then he, I felt like Plato kind of warms up to you because then he's just really looking for a father figure. He's just acting out that's why he did that he's not a serial killer he's just he he wants a father figure and that he sees that in jim
3: yeah i i i get that uh definitely like in the beginning when you when the officer's talking to him, like why did you shoot those puppies i was looking at <laughs> all right ted bundy what's <laughs> happening <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 then you like uh, i think he's i'm not gonna like go on a really long tangent but i think he's kind of like i'm not i won't say delusional really but i think he's I think something's like wrong with him. Not, not maybe like seriously, uh, or maybe he shot a guy after all and a bunch of pop- uh, puppies. But um, I think he's he's, as you're saying, looking for the for a father figure and an actual friend, like someone who cares about him. Isn't just gonna run out on him. Well, that's the is, whole. Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, uh, I'm, I was just gonna say which is really sad. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole reason
1: he flips out at the end is because even though they went to like the next room over, he thought they abandoned him and he just lost his mind. You know, he, you're right. He, there definitely was something broken there, probably because of his parents. And, you know, he, he just flips out and takes the gun and just, you know, of course, he's being attacked. So that freaks him out even more. And he just I think he just lost his mind at the end.
3: Yeah. And, and, you know, he's I think he has a good heart, the character, because, you know, he the only reason he he gets the gun is to protect Jim. Like it's not for himself. Like if it was for himself, he would have run upstairs, gotten the gun and shot the kids. But it was to go and protect Jim.
1: Right. And, you know, it was interesting on, on a different note. We were talking about the opening scene here. Um, Judy, well, first I noticed. Did you notice? Like right when you see her, she's wearing this bright red coat, and everybody else is wearing sort of like browns and blues and blacks. So she has very
3: uh, she stood a, out. A monotone. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah,
1: and so when she's talking to the cops, and they're asking her, you know, I think it was Ray actually she was talking to. Yeah, it was. And he says, um, he may he says a line like, "Were you looking for someone, or were you looking to hook up with someone?" He doesn't quite say it that way, but he implied that and there was a i guess there were a few more lines where it basically made her sound like a streetwalker and back then the censors made them cut that way down i think before they even shot the scene because they didn't want any implications of sex sexual activity with teenagers so yeah
3: i i thought it was kind of weird and and you know if i was asked that by a cop uh, as as a woman or a young young woman i would have been very very like angry i think Yeah, you know i'll probably be like uh what are you implying right exactly (laughs) but 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 definitely like um the way i'm not gonna say she's dressed offensively because she's not she's dressed pretty normally i would say and and you know it's kind of i I thought it kind of weird the opening scene all of the things that they're saying to the other characters plato and judy but i think it's a very good scene definitely
1: yeah yeah now, the whole movie is told from the point of view of the teenagers, which is cool, because that's that's like I said earlier, is that's what makes the movie relatable to even audiences today. And, you know, the parents are portrayed as ineffectual. You know, Jim complains that his mom and grandma are making mush out of dad. And, you know, the, the parents don't know how to deal with the kids. Uh, they don't really know how to relate to them. You know, Judy's mom's a pushover and the dad doesn't even know where to begin to deal with her because she's not a little girl anymore. But there was that scene where she tries to kiss him, and the father, yeah, and he yeah. flips out. And the senses were worried that that kiss would be implications of an incestuous relationship. But I didn't get that out of it at all.
3: No, I I kind of – I actually uh, drew the conclusion that, you know, there's a contrast between Jim's family and her family uh, later that, you know, his dad's a pushover and his mom's like a tyrant right? and very ineffectual. And and it's the opposite way around for, for – um, for Judy. And, you know, I, I think it's hard on, you. I'm just going to wind it back a bit. Uh, I think that the dad kind of, as you're saying, he doesn't know how to deal with it because she's not a little girl anymore. And I think that's uh, the opposite way of how a lot of parents see it, that a lot of parents think that, uh, you know, your, your child is growing up and and becoming more independent and all of a sudden they don't want all that affection really. They want to, you know, like take a step back and, I think that this like it's the opposite thing that she's doing. She's still like she's still, you know, like their child. She still loves them and wants to show that. But her dad thinks it's kind of weird that, you know, you're 16 now, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You shouldn't be kissing me like that anymore. You know, it's little little girls do that, but not teenage girls, you know.
3: Yeah, And I think that's I think it's the wrong, wrong move, of course, because, you know, you shouldn't pace your, your children to become more independent. I think you should let them do it in their own time. Right. And you know, it can hurt that, that they do it too fast and it can be weird that they're doing it too slow, but you know, it takes time. Everyone's different.
1: And you know, that's the thing with Jim too, is like, I think he, he feels disconnected to the world. He doesn't understand why he feels what he feels. He just knows he's angry. He's angry. And his whole family is already confrontational to begin with. So like on his side of things, he's just, he can't figure anything out. I think he, I forget what the line was that he used, but he's just like, I'm, you know, I'm all confused. I don't understand what's going on here. You know?
3: Yeah. And, and I can relate to that. You know, I'm not gonna like go into like a whole backstory, but you know, uh, my parents, you know, argued and, and, and and fought a lot, and, and they're divorced. But I, I kind of feel that, you know, today, uh, sometimes it can be frustrating, you know, not knowing uh, the the things I maybe would have known uh, if, if they weren't.
1: Right, and, and you know, and the whole thing with Judy is, again, it, it, like you said, it's sort of the opposite. I mean, the parents are, are role-reversed in terms of compared to Jim's parents, but also she's still kind of a kid. They're all still kind of kids, just trying to figure their way into this adult world whereas american graffiti was now they're adults and they've got to move into the real adult world these are the kids in between they're just younger than that where they're just just going into adulthood and they they can't wrap their brains around it and their parents are absolutely useless they have no guidance i mean jim's father can't give him any kind of sound advice on anything make a list that's his advice (laughs) (laughs) yeah
3: which is really stupid but yeah Yeah, and 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 I'm not I'm not gonna uh, say the same things uh, or say the the same thing as you did because you know I think that Jim's dad wants to you know help Jim because he still waits up for him. I know he falls asleep, but he waits up for him. He's he's uh, like. He wants to like help him. He he really does, but he doesn't know how to. So right. yes, of course, in a sense they he is pretty useless and he is a coward. Well he's not he's not a
1: strong masculine role model, and I think that's what Jim wants from him. He wants him to stand up for him. He wants him, you know, to be the dad that he needs to be able to count on.
3: Yeah. And, and uh, on the up- opposite end of uh, of the spectrum, there's uh, Judy's dad where she comes home and hugs Bo and he, he just sends Bo to bed and like walks up after her and she just walks into her room. He's just standing there looking like, I-, I don't really care.
1: Right. And there's that funny scene when she does that, when she goes into the room and closes the door. Apparently, she was originally supposed to slam it and she slammed it so hard that the whole set shook. So they they had to do like several retakes till they finally got it to the point where she could just close the door and, and not shake the whole set.
3: <laughs> yeah, I I I I got the sense that you know she was supposed to slam the door way harder because I was I was confused. I was like, why aren't you more angry? Like you, like I closed the door, like kind of like that almost. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, of course, like. It's a set. It's not a real house.
1: Right. <laughs> and that was another bone of contention with the director, too, is that the the studio really wanted him to just utilize the sets. And obviously for interiors, that's what they did for the most part, except for the mansion. But he wanted to shoot outside quite a bit. And he wanted, like, that whole scene at the beginning when um, Jim first talks to Judy outside and he offers to drive her to school, he wanted shots of the neighborhood. He wanted to give it, like, that authenticity um, so it just would add a, a level of realism to the film. And that's what he was looking for.
3: Yeah, I, I think um, looking at American Graffiti, I think they or George Lucas did a way better job there because, you know, they're always outside, basically. And yeah, I, I think he they wanted the kind of same thing in 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 the sense that they want to show off like this isn't like a set, like trying to put it in people's mind that this is the real world. Right.
1: Right. Right. You know what I like, too? And this I, I don't know what made me think of this now. It's kind of unrelated to what we're just talking about. But there's the whole sequence of and it happens two or three times where Jim is telling the father to stand up and like literally he's physically trying to help him stand up at a couple of times. But I, I, I felt there was like a double meaning there where he, he not only meant literally just stand up on your feet, but stand up and be a man. Stand up and face the world and face your wife and, you know, you know do what you got to do. And then I love how it comes full circle at the end where Jim is just distraught because Plato is dead and the father puts his coat over him, just like Jim did to Plato, and he, he tells him to stand up. And then the father actually, his character does change and he does become a man and the wife even goes to say something and he just gives her a look and she shuts up. You know, it's like now he's finally yeah. in control.
3: Yeah, I, I realized that you know they're they like in the beginning he's like stand up for me and and like he's trying to like pull him up and he can't and and in the end, Jim's dad is looking at him like comforting him and he's like I'll stand up with you I'll I'll be stronger with you.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: And uh, I think it's a like it, it's nice like it, it's a like a, it's a wholesome scene. It really is and and. Uh, also, again, it's kind of unrelated, but you know where you said he he gives her that look. I can't. I kind of think that's the the same thing that Jim meant when he was talking to Ray, and he's like he says if he would just knock her cold. Yeah, <laughs> that was a great. I, line. I think that's the. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that's what he meant. You know, like tell her to shut up for once. Like Right. Not, like let him tra- like let her trample on you.
1: Right. Exactly. You know, and we got a lot of good themes in this film. Of course, rebellion. You know, teenagers will always want to rebel against their parents. Although I think, in line with the title of the film, "Rebel Without a Cause," I don't think Jim knew what he was rebelling against. He just was acting out because he wanted his parents to be something that they weren't.
3: Yeah, and I think when he was talking to Ray in the beginning, again, like a lot of the the, the main things we're talking about are actually in the beginning and like the yeah. middle of the movie. But, but really, in the beginning when he's like why are you doing this and he and Jim just like he gets really frustrated and he's crying he says like i don't know i'm yeah. so confused and yeah. and and i think that's like it's a great point that you made that like he doesn't actually know what he's doing he, you know he's just trying to like like he's rebelling against like the whole world basically in in his mind but really he's just rebelling against his parents and like He's, he doesn't actually know what he's he's doing. Right. <laughs> so
1: uh, a couple of things about the, the production of the film here. We've got the the planetarium inside was actually smaller than it looked in the movie. And they had real trouble setting the cameras up in there. In particular, there's the scene where the, the planetarium show is done. And Jim goes to leave and he looks over the, at the guy sitting at the controls. And he's kind of admiring it and has a conversation with him. It took them like, I don't know, five or six hours to set that up. To get the camera there to light it because it was just such a such tight quarters.
3: Yeah, I, I kind of got the sense that it was really cramped in there. Yeah, and not like I think they if it's smaller than it looks, I think they did a great job. But already from like watching the movie, I got the sense that it was it was pretty small, like planetarium.
1: Right, right. So, but they did a good job with that, and uh, you know, again, as we said earlier, they kind of bring it back at the end. You know, what's funny—the part where Jim does the mooing in the in the audience. Yeah. Um. I guess him and the director. I'm sorry. No. Him and the writer would always. Uh, they would get into this mooing competition, and off off screen. And they thought it was so funny that that's why they added that in. And they added in <laughs> the, the fact that Buzz calls him to- Toreador, You know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that, that that's actually really funny that uh, it's completely unrelated to the movie that he's just like they're just mooing at each other.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and the scene where they're leaving the planetarium and the there's the group of the you know the gang is standing outside and they're like well what are we going to do with Moo? And they're trying to figure out you know what are they going to do with him? They improvised that as well. They said to the director they felt like there needed to be a scene to sort of bridge between you know what had happened earlier and what was going to happen next and he thought it was a great idea so they totally improvised that scene
3: if they hadn't added that scene i think it would have been a whole lot more confusing like why were they like challenging him exactly i I would have been like well that kind that's kind of like a uh, that's jumping to like an extreme really that you know challenging him to like do the chicken run up in the bluff right just because he moved at you Right. But then you know they have the whole scene where they're like, "What are we gonna do with him?" You know, and and I kind of got the sense that like, okay, these guys are like gangbangers or whatever.
1: Yeah, and the the whole scene where they well, first first before I get into the, the the knife fight scene, they um, when Plato shows him the mansion, remember they were looking out over the like um the terrace of the planetarium, yeah. and you see the mansion in the distance. That was not there. That was matted in, and they did a great yeah, I, job with that.
3: I I. I, I... I didn't know that. It looked really real to yeah. me, like, uh, especially see, like thinking about like when this movie was made. I think it looked really realistic because I I couldn't tell that it was fake.
1: Yeah, that one. And you know what else was a scene that I was surprised at was when they were at the cliff looking over at the ocean. There's two shots. There's one where it's, it's uh, Jim and Buzz and then it's one after Buzz has gone over the cliff and the kids are looking over. The water was added in it was only like a four foot drop or something. And they had
3: a blue screen down there. That I didn't know that. That's, that's pretty crazy. Actually. I yeah. thought it looked really real. Like it looked kind of grainy, but then in my mind I was like, well, this is an old movie. So, you know, old cameras.
1: Right. Right. So
3: it, it has to be real. But then now like thinking about it, like it would have been pretty crazy to have all those actors up there looking over like a huge bluff. Oh yeah. <laughs> We're dangerous. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> but if you want to talk about the knife fight movie, I think that the or not uh, knife fight scene, sorry. Uh, yeah. I think the you know the part where he's like going towards the exit and bus looking at him. and I think it, it kind of shows that, you know he like they had to move because he beat up a kid like really bad. and and I think he's like that's a part of the thing where he's like he's changing. yeah, and there's also the part where he like accidentally steps on the school insignia and and he's like oh I'm, I'm sorry he apologizes i don't think like the old old him old jim like back when before the movie i, th- I don't think he would have apologized he would have been a real tough guy
1: yeah yeah i think he was definitely trying to not cause trouble this time around he he even said it when buzz was going at him with the knife he's like i don't want to do this it's just trouble man it's just trouble
3: yeah and he like he he repeats it like like a lot he, he keeps saying like I don't want any trouble I don't want to fight and then he like goats him into fighting him because yeah. you know calling him a chicken and that's what he beat that kid up for and yeah we come from the retro future we want you to be nostalgic
2: for what's to come a new channel and distribution network for smart people with bad taste featuring content from Church of the Subgenius, Creature Features, Cinema, Insomnia, Sleazy P Martini and Guar, Troma, Corey Maccabee, Horror, Sci Fi, Saturday morning cartoons, midnight movies, and assorted trash we love. Add our channel, OSI 74, to your Roku player or visit OSI74.com. All systems go. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margariti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil and our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So, join me and my rotating crew of co hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So, join me for The Bloody Pit.
0: Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and Ahead of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio.
1: Apparently, uh, switchblades were illegal in California, and those were actually real switchblades that they got from the police who had confiscated them from real delinquents. And what they did was they dulled the knives down as much as they could, and then they gave Buzz and Jim um, chest protectors under their shirts just in case they accidentally stabbed each other.
3: Yeah, because they, like, I I, I know that people like or, uh, the, the, the prop makers are really, really talented, but, you know, those knives looked really real and they looked really, really pointy. Yeah. <laughs> so even if they were dull, you could still, like, stab someone with it, right? So oh, yeah. I think that was a good idea because, you know, hearing – Oh, they were real. I was like, oh, that's yeah, <laughs> that's that's a bit iffy.
1: <laughs> Did you notice, too, in the scene just prior to that, where uh, Buzz stabs Jim's uh, he punctures Jim's tire in his car. The shot of Jim as the tire is the, is deflating and the car is going down. Jim exhales and he just kind of sinks down to the ground too, like against whatever he's leaning against. Almost like he was deflating, too.
3: Yeah, I, uh, I, I actually, I, I, I drew the conclusion from that that you know he was like, he, it was kind of winding up to him, you know, going down there and beating beating the crap out of bus From yeah. that, like he was deflating with the tire, and he was like, oh, "All right, this is enough. Enough is enough."
1: Yeah, exactly. Hey, what, what? By the way, what happened to the grandmother? She was there in the opening scene. She was there at breakfast, and then she, the only thing left of her at the end was the um. The picture of her that uh, that Jim kicked his foot through, pushed his foot through.
3: <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I th- now that you're saying it, I uh, that's kind of weird that she just like she literally disappears. She's not in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe I missed her, but I, I don't know. But I didn't see no, her.
1: No, I didn't, no, she wasn't in it. She was gone.
3: <laughs> also, uh, I forgot to say this about American Graffiti, but we were talking about you know the whole. Uh, it was a different society and, and stuff, and and you know I I realized there was a, the 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 housekeeper in um, uh, Plato's house, yep. and then I realized I didn't see one black actor in American Graffiti. Oh yeah, and and I was talking with my dad, and he was like, "Well, it was a different time." And I'm like, "But well, this was like ten years before American Graffiti." Right. So that kind of doesn't make sense. Maybe it's like just a coincidence, but I think it's I think it was pretty funny. And also yeah. the housekeeper was like, I think she was a really great actor as well. Uh, she, like she re- genuinely cared for Plato. I think she was really great. And, and, you know, in the end, when he's lying there on the ground, she's like, the poor boy didn't have nobody. Right. And that like, it kind of, you know, it kind of makes you sad looking at it. Like he actually didn't have anyone. And, yeah. and the cops were just doing their job really. And, yeah. and of course they didn't know he, he didn't have, you know, it wasn't a loaded gun. So it's, it's really sad. Oh,
1: yeah, that whole ending is really sad. And you know what was kind of sad, too, that I thought is, because I, like I said, I really I didn't know anything about this movie. I didn't know what was going to happen at the Chickie run. And when Jim and Buzz are walking towards the cars, they actually tell each other what their names are, and they shake hands. And Buzz kind of looks at him, and he goes, you know, I like you. It basically implies, you know, they still have to do this stupid ritual because he has to maintain his leadership of the gang. But it was really too bad because I even turned to my wife and I was like, oh, man, those guys, those guys could be good friends if they can get past whatever's going on here, you know. And then, of course, they couldn't because Buzz died.
3: <laughs> yeah, I you know, I got the sense that as Jim was saying that. You know, it's for it's for my honor, right? And and the right. same thing could be said for Buzz. You know, it's for his honor because you know he's the gang leader, and right. and it's kind of sad that you know they they had to go to such an extreme to like prove that you know I'm a man, right? And couldn't just you know sit down and talk about it right. instead of you know being said like so. I I don't really know what to say. It's it's such a crazy thing to do, you know, just to prove your honor, right? Yeah, exactly. I guess it was
1: originally supposed to be um, uh, a game of chicken. Uh, not actually, it wasn't called a chicky run. It was something a chicky run. It was something different. But they, um, what it was supposed to be is, you have a tunnel. Oh, it was supposed to be a blind run, and you have a tunnel, and the two cars race towards each other, and the yeah. first one to pull away is the chicken. And yeah, for whatever yeah, reason, and, they changed that, and they thought the cliffside would be better.
3: Uh, yeah, the, I I thought it would be, have been like an actual, you know, a chicken run like towards each other. I thought that would like that was what was gonna happen. But then they mentioned the bluff, and I'm like, okay, what are they gonna do?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing.
3: No, but I, I think it's a powerful scene. Really, it is. You know, like
1: oh, very much.
3: Like the whole scene of him like testing the door. Yeah. But Bus doesn't do that.
1: Right. Well, because Buzz has, had done it, you know Remember he, uh, Jim said Oh yeah, I know what a chicky run is And he turns to Plato and goes, what the heck's a chicky run
3: You know Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> he yeah, had no I, idea I, I, I think the 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 teenagers It shows like, uh, I think it kind of shows That like a lot of them are compulsive liars And Plato especially Uh, But I think that it, It's kind of funny that, you know, he tests the door But what if uh, Buzz had done that Maybe he would have realized, okay, I shouldn't have my jacket on Yeah, yeah <laughs> But, you know, it, it's, it, take it for what it is. It's still a movie. No movie is, like, perfect. And, right. And But, you know, but it's still it's, – it's a powerful movie and scene. It really is. Oh, it's, absolutely. I, I, I kind of felt sad. I felt sad for Jim, too, because, you know, he was like – he was laughing. He's like, oh, where's Buzz? And, yeah. you know, they point down. He's like, down there. Yeah, he's like, oh, fuck.
1: <laughs>
3: oh. <laughs> the way he just said that Oh fuck
1: Because
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know that was going through his head <laughs> uh, Yeah yeah definitely I, I don't know what I would have said I would have been like Jesus <laughs> You know uh, all those
1: cars That the kids had were actually um, They were hot rods the, 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 <laughs> the producers just wanted them to be regular cars And um, no Nick, Nick Ray was like Nope they're going to be hot rods And he had all these um, souped up hot rods brought in
3: that's actually really cool. It uh, it makes me uh, like uh, think about, or it uh, reminds me of what you said about uh, American Graffiti, which again is a great episode. You guys should watch that. Yes, but uh, they, like the cars didn't get sold. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: Oh, I didn't, that, I didn't think to look into about these cars.
3: <laughs> yeah, and I, I kind of thought you were going to, like, uh, talk about that again. You know, the cars didn't get sold. I, I, I was kind of preparing myself for it. I was like, oh, no.
1: <laughs> no, I forgot. That's something we'll have to look into and maybe bring it up the next time we talk. But, yeah, so this, this, the whole movie is very powerful, uh, although there was a few funny lines. Like when, when Judy's father answers the phone and then he goes, Jim who? Never heard of you, click. And he hangs up on him.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. And she's just like, she's listening through the door. She's like, she didn't have to hang up on him like that.
1: (laughs) And did you notice the scene um, shortly after, uh, I guess it was after Jim left the house. Well, first of all, he meets up with Judy and he kind of stumbles out of the car and his car radio is playing. Did you think he was drunk in that scene? Like pretty much all the way into the the mansion scene?
3: I, I I think something like I I had the sense that or I had the feeling that something was going on because it kind of like it was kind of weird. You know, She's like, hey, Jamie. And he's like looking at her.
1: Yeah. He puts the cigarette in his mouth backwards and she fixes it for him.
3: Yeah. Maybe it was just because, you know, he wanted to be like funny. But I was like, that's. Uh, It seems weird.
1: I thought he was drunk. But um, what's interesting in that scene, I don't know if you noticed, but the music playing on the radio wasn't rock and roll. It was more like uh, big band swing kind of music, which I think, if I remember correctly, up to this point, rock and roll really hadn't hit it big. Um, So the kids weren't quite listening to it just yet. So that's why he had old time music on the radio.
3: I didn't uh, I didn't actually think about that. But now thinking about that and again, American graffiti where it's all rock and roll. Right. And and it's not yeah. that much later in like, you know, the movie universes or whatever. It's not that much later. Right. In the real world. So I think that's kind of that, that's actually a really like interesting fact.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. Now, remember the scene where they nailed uh, they hung the chicken in front of the door? They were supposed to nail a dead chicken to the door, and of course, the censors said no, you can't do that. And so they they had two chickens that they used for that scene. And once they finished shooting the scene where it was hung upside down, it, I guess the chickens had laid eggs. So James Dean took the eggs and he went to the commissary and made an omelet. <laughs>
3: yeah. That's actually that's actually really cool. Yeah. i Again, it's such a shame that we lost James De- James Dean so young. I know. Yeah, I think he would. I think there would have been a lot of things like that. Uh, you know, well-known about movies that he was in. Yeah, like he'd done like funny things like that. I, I think that I think that's really sad that we didn't get to hear more about stuff like that.
1: I know. And he was just so cool in this, like without even trying. And it, it, part of it too was because you knew he was a nice guy and just, just his look, you know, with the red coat and everything and his look and his, the, his mannerism, the way he carried himself, he was just cool.
3: Yeah, I I kind of got the the feeling that this guy could be in Greece. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, you have that whole like greaser feel, right? You know, yeah, his aneurysms and uh, mannerisms, uh, you know, just the way he's he the way he acts in the movie, like he's just he's this cool guy.
1: Yeah, exactly. You and you know, feels
3: so feel like, it feels so real.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, because that really, yeah, because that was coming from him. You know, what I mean, you could feel it. Like it, it definitely had a real vibe to it. And and what I think what enhanced it too was like, like I loved how this movie was shot, and I loved the use of colors. And when he's got the red jacket and the blue jeans and the white T shirt, and with with his hair color and the way they would light him, it just worked in every shot. It just lit up the whole scene every time. At least I thought.
3: I think he like I think he's close in the movie like. Um... I don't know. Like, I don't think it was like an like a intentional, but I I like to have people in the future think about it like this. But I, he really had that cool vintage look. I I really think he did.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Lucas, anything else you want to bring up about uh, about Rebel Without a Cause?
3: Uh, I'm gonna take a look on my uh, my notes real quick.
1: Oh, actually, while you're doing that, there was one thing I thought of. Um, where at the end when he's trying to save Plato. He's basically using all his father's logic. He's telling him things like everything's going to be okay, They're your friends. Don't worry about it. And which were lies. You know, of course, he was going to go to jail for shooting that kid and all that stuff. But he didn't know what else to do. He only had his father's example to go by. You know?
3: Yeah, and I think that, like, the, the way uh, he was talking to him and the way that, like, he he um, carried himself kind of, like, mixed into this or melted into this, like, uh, this perfect figure for, for Plato to look up to. So he was like, all right, everything is going to be all right. Okay, we can go outside. You can, you can have my gun if I can have it back, like, right after. And. And, you know, I, I think it kind of like melted into like the perfect father figure for for Plato.
1: Right. And that was a bad move. He should never have given him the gun back. I was even yelling at the screen at that point um, because I totally saw the ending coming, you know?
3: Yeah, exactly. And I was kind of looking at it. I was like, OK, he took the magazine out, but he didn't. First of all, he didn't remove the bullet from the chamber. Right. And second of <laughs> And second of all, that's still a kid carrying a gun who's like, I don't know. Like he was very stressed out and like all kind of jittery, and he's gonna go outside to armed cops with a gun in hand. That's right. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I actually want to talk about uh, Pl- Plato for a little while because you know sure. he, he, I think he's a he's a great character uh, first of all, and I think he's very tragic. Yeah. But I think also he is uh, he is definitely a compulsive liar. Uh, even uh, Jim or James Dean like catches him in a lie when he's like oh my dad was a war hero and he's dead and he's like i thought your dad i thought you said your dad was a, a big wheel in in new york right and also the whole thing where he's like oh he's my best friend uh, like to judy and yeah like, and, and again that's something i really picked up on when she says well hello there uh, jamie and he's like what yeah <laughs> and, and and that was because plato has said he his bet like he lets his best friends call him jamie right which is a complete lie he never told him that and they've known each other for all of like 12 hours right <laughs> if that <laughs> yeah exactly and i was like this kid like i like i'm not gonna say he's like a psychopath because that's really like jumping to like conclusions because i think he's a genuinely good guy but he's confused and i definitely think he's kind of delusional uh, to yeah. think that a kid his age is a father figure. Yeah. and but I think uh, – oh, I'm sorry.
1: No, I was going to say, I, I actually thought that was kind of cool too where they, the three of them, they couldn't get any real parenting from their own parents, so they kind of formed this own little family unit, their own little family unit, I should say. In, in, you know, yeah, in the and mansion. I,
3: it was a really wholesome scene where they're like lying on the, the the sofa or whatever and talking, and he falls asleep, and they like Your face they down, like down in the dirt. Him, Yeah. And I think I I told my dad, I was like, okay, so you're just going to let your good friend lie there on the cold ground. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's, again, it's still like a sweet scene, you know, they're like tucking him in with his jacket and laughing at his, at at his, uh, at his socks that are two different colors. And I think, I think he's a, he's a good kid, uh, Plato, but I think something's wrong with him. Also uh, he's like, uh, he says he's talked to a, a shrink before or a head shrinker, as he says. Right. But uh, in the beginning, uh, when they're at the juvenile hall, the housekeeper says his mom doesn't believe in that. So, again, he's a compulsive liar. And I'm not going to. That's right. I'm not like a I'm not a psychoanalyst or anything, but I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, what, what like my personal opinion, you know, looking at the movie and the character, the way he he acts. He's like he kind of he is he he really does lie a lot. And, and you know, he, he's pretending. Right.
1: Exactly. I didn't notice that before. That's awesome. Yeah, he definitely a compulsive liar is another component of of his psyche, and it just shows you how how broken he is.
3: Yeah, but again, you know, Jim doesn't care. You know, like, or of course he doesn't know that he's lying all the time, right. or most of the time. But of course, like, he still cares about him because you know he's a sincere guy. But when he says like my dad was a war hero, and he's like, I thought you said your dad was a big wheel in New York. And he's like, yeah, what's like, what's the difference? He might as well be dead because you know, his dad like ran out on them and whatever. Right. But I, I think like Jim didn't care about that. You know, he, he thought he was a nice guy and, and that's all he saw in him. a, a Nice kid.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I knew he was going to go back for his gun when he ran away from those kids. And I was, I was thinking, Oh my God, your guns in your coat. And then, it, but they were right there. He couldn't have done it. So he runs down to the pool and, um, you know, he's hitting them with the hose and everything finally manages to get back and then he grabs the gun and I, you know, then you knew it was just going to get worse from there.
3: <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, when they like, uh, like catch him outside of his house, I was like, when he ran inside, I was like, Oh no, your mom's gun is upstairs. Right. And I just knew he was going to like, he's going to do something stupid. And yeah, already then I kind of like had this premonition of, of what was going to like be the ending. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. And it, 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 like it. Of course, it's a tragic uh, ending, but it also is a. It kind of comes like full circle for Jim, right. which is sad that you don't really you don't really see the ending for for Judy per se, which is kind of sad. I really liked Bo for one, uh, her little brother. I really liked him. Oh yeah, <laughs> he reminded me of the little brother in The Blob. <laughs> I haven't I haven't watched that. Oh, have to watch that. Get that reference, (laughs) but but no, I think he was like the 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 innocence of the movie. You know, he he, she comes home and like bus is dead, and and he's just like, hey, cute big sister, and and she she like hugs him and he like kisses her on the nose.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was cute.
3: Yeah, and uh, you know, there's a lot of good characters, even the minor ones, and just the way that everyone acts, it feels very you know real and sincere. Oh, absolutely. So I have a
1: question for you. All right, so uh, who is it, Goon and uh, uh, what was it, Um, Crunch and the other guy, they find Plato. They steal his address book so they know where Jim lives. So they go to Jim's Mm -hmm. house to do the whole thing with the chicken, and then they run away. Now, Plato made a guess that they would be at the mansion because he had told— Jim about the mansion and he figured well Jim's new you gotta figure his the way his mind was working well Jim's new here he doesn't know of many places but he does know that place because I told him might as well go check and see if he's there how did yeah. the other kids the gang know enough to go there and how did the parents and the police know enough to go to the observatory they don't really answer that question in the movie
3: yeah I kind of thought it was pretty weird that you know the kids all of a sudden just show up at the mansion I was like uh, they couldn't have followed him or they would have been there as soon as Plato was there. Right. And on the other hand, how did the cop get there when, like, he shoots the kid? Like, how all of a sudden was there, like, a cop or guard or whatever? And also, in the end, as you were saying, like, Ray and, and Jim's parents are driving, and it's like, how did they know where to go? Like, right. they didn't know where Jim <laughs> went, so how did they all of a sudden know, ah, oh, it's the observatory? And where the heck did the maid come from? Did she run all the way there from her house? <laughs> <laughs> like I know, there's that scene where they're like talking to the cops. I think, or I'm I'm assuming they're talking to the cops, like the the maid and yeah, or housekeeper or whatever, and and, and uh, Judy's parents and and Jim's parents. But that doesn't really answer anything, you know. Of course, they're talking to the cops. Their kits are gone, right? And, and then all of a sudden, they're they're just at the observatory, and Plato's dead.
1: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I can think of is that somehow the maid maybe knew that the mansion was a place that Plato would go hang out. And then somehow the information got out from her to everybody else. But even then, the cops and the parents go to the planetarium. They don't go to the, the mansion.
3: Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's the thing. Like, it doesn't actually make sense at all. And all of a sudden, now I'm thinking, Jim's parents don't know anyone. So even if it got out from the maid, how would Jim's parents know about the mansion or the observatory? Right.
1: And, you know, in thinking further on this, uh, the scene where Jim's parents are in the car with Ray and he's he gets a call on the radio about the observatory. He's like, oh, uh, a bunch of other kids are in trouble at the observatory. Uh, You're going to have to go with me for that. And and Frank's like, yeah, sure. Or whatever. So they weren't even they didn't even know where they were going. They were just aimlessly driving around and got called into the observatory. But how did I don't understand where the call came from?
3: yeah it doesn't really make sense <laughs> now i'm getting the the whole uh, i don't know how much youtube you watch but the, the Matt pat from film theory oh i'm familiar with it but i think i've only seen a couple of them yeah, now we're just sitting here theorizing proving stuff that oh. isn't like relevant to anything <laughs> but it really is kind of interesting that like you don't you don't really under, like i don't really understand how they got there or why ray would even like take them with them in the first place.
1: <laughs> well, I get, they, what's he going to do with them? I he mean, just drop them off in the middle of the city. You know, they're gonna, they, I was thinking that, too. And I'm like, well, they're going to have to just go with him because he can't just leave them there. <laughs>
3: yeah. Of uh, course, like as I'm saying, it's just a movie, right? <laughs> right, kinda... right.
1: And I tend to overanalyze these things myself. But let, let's think about this for a second here. So let's pretend. Um, all right. So Plato shoots the kid. in the mansion now from the vantage point where we saw the mansion it looked like there was nothing else but trees around it but maybe there were neighboring houses someone heard the gunshots and called the cops so the cop went there he ran out even though when we saw the the distance between the mansion and the and the observatory it was there's no way he could have got there in the time that he did let's pretend it was closer so plato runs to the mansion i'm sorry plato runs from the mansion to the observatory so the cops arrive at the mansion because they got a call there then they they know he's on foot they know what directions he's going in so that's when they put out the word that a crazed kid with a gun is headed for the observatory and that's where ray gets the call and goes in that kind of makes sense there but it still doesn't answer how the gang members found him at the mansion (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, that's true. But also, like, uh, I'm guessing, you know, a gunshot is really, really loud. So I'm betting a guard at the observatory, maybe, maybe, just maybe could have heard uh, the gunshot in that's the true. mansion. But that doesn't really answer because I would assume that he would drive there. But that's still pretty far in the right. time it took for a, a random guard to just show up. And why would a random guard go there? It doesn't make sense either. But and that wasn't, saying, it wasn't
1: a guard that was chasing. Him. That was a cop because he had that cool leather jacket, you know.
3: Yeah, so you know he's a cop. He has a leather jacket. Yeah,
1: a nineteen fifties cop. He's got a leather jacket.
3: Yeah, but okay, yeah, okay. So he's he's a cop. So the only thing that would make sense is that the neighbors heard it, or maybe as as I was saying, the guard heard it, called the cops. But that still it would take forever for them to get up there. He could have killed all the kids, Jim and Judy, and gotten away before they would get up there.
1: Right. Right. Hmm. Well, I guess it's one of those things we'll never really get a, an answer to.
3: <laughs> yeah, but. It's still fun to theorize about it and, oh exactly you know, like discuss discuss what might have happened because you know it, it sometimes get a gets a little bit boring, you know watching a movie and it's just it's like of course it's just a movie, but it's like it's it's more fun to like think about it like okay, what if this was the real world right
1: oh yeah, yeah,
3: but again, it's just fiction, so there it's was a movie
1: there was one time when i was when I was your age when i when I was your age when I was like I was nineteen. <laughs> And when we were um, at a friend's house, we would play, like, you know, role-playing games till you know, 3, 4, 5 in the morning. And a bunch of us got into an argument. Now, this was before Terminator 2 came out. We got an argument into who would win in a fight, Terminator or Robocop. And it literally lasted till like, 6 in the morning.
3: <laughs> yeah, and it, I think that's a fair point because, you know, they're both in the future. And we don't really know super, like, a huge amount about any of them. But, right. You know. And I'm this not is, gonna. Well, I'm not gonna stand anyone, but I'm just gonna say I think RoboCop would win.
1: Well, I argued that too because I felt he had the human cunning, whereas the Terminator was just a robot. But then that kind of got disproved in the second movie because you find out that Terminators are actually learning machines, and <sighs> they can adapt yeah, yeah, and learn. Yeah, that's actually true. So, but but at the time of our argument, we hadn't. The second one hadn't come out yet. So. Um. <laughs>
3: Uh, But then again, you could take into account the new RoboCop, which is much faster than a Terminator.
1: Oh, don't even bring that up.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The new RoboCop is so terrible. Oh, my God,
1: that was awful. In fact, if you get a chance, um, we covered that, I think, in the second episode of Then Is Now. Oh. oh, that
3: that would actually be really good to watch. That that would be really funny. I think that movie is horrible. Yeah, <laughs> but honestly, uh, actually, I don't know if you know this, but I, or maybe you have uh, reviewed like uh, Terminator One, but but uh, it was uh, supposed to be O.J. Simpson that was uh, Terminator. Yes, I did know that. He he was uh, too nice of a guy, apparently. Yeah. Double homicide.
1: <laughs> yeah, he wasn't good enough to be a Terminator.
3: <laughs> yeah, but the the governator, He's the best He's one, He's the best apparently. one, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> nah, But uh, again, I couldn't ever imagine O.J. Simpson as Terminator. No, so. no, not at all.
1: So getting back to Rebel Without a Cause, Lucas, anything else that you can think of? I think we've covered quite a bit.
3: Yeah, I, I think we have. And especially, like, I don't, like, you can't really talk too much about, like, the minor characters. Like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Goon or whatever. And, uh, and right. uh, Crunch. Like, you can't really talk too much about them because we don't really know a lot. Uh, of course, you can. You can argue. You know, you see their like dads or whatever, and they're like, looking at them compared to Jim's dads. You know, you would think that these guys are gangsters or something, right? <laughs> because you know these guys. Like he was about to like knock uh, Crunch or whatever on his ass, and 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 looking at Jim's dad, you're like, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, but but it's not like a super a huge cast of well-developed characters because like if buzz hadn't died there would be another character to talk about but you know he gets off relatively fast and then we've already talked about judy her family we've talked a lot about jim and and of course his his dad and and ray we've like briefly briefly talked about him and and how he's like a contrast to jim's dad and and then we've talked about uh, a play-doh which i brought up and and we we talked about that. So I think that's most of it really talked about and we've theorized and, and there's a, there's a lot of things we've talked about, I think. And, and um, I don't really think there's so much more to, to bring up because yeah. it, it, there doesn't really happen too much in the movie. Really. It's, it all revolves around the, the same thing. Yeah. So yeah. I don't, I don't think there's much more to bring up. Really, no,
1: I, Yeah. I think we've covered all the themes. You've got, you know, family was a big theme in this um, communication wasn't a lot of communication between the parents and the kids because the parents didn't know how to do it. Um, you know, rebellion, of course, we mentioned and, you know, Jim trying to figure out his place in the world, which they all kind of were. They were all looking for something. But they, I think at the at the bottom, the bottom line is they all really just wanted a family to support them. And that's why it worked for Jim and Judy and Plato to kind of come together as this pretend family because they were each filling a need that the other one had.
3: Definitely. Because, you know, they all came from like a, well, one of them came from a broken home and one of the, the two others came from a troubled home. And and I think that kind of, you know, that it kind of fits together in, in a way. Exactly. Uh, and, and again, uh, going back to talking about American graffiti, you know, there's also the theme of, as you said, changing. And, and they, they all change uh, except for, you know, like the minor characters, of course, but but all of them are like trying to change. And uh, the whole uh, teenage theme of it is also really, like, it's very clear that it's about teenagers, you know, being teenagers and not not really knowing what to do because their parents don't support them, uh, as you were saying. And and I think that's, uh, I think it's a great theme because, again, uh, I uh, have said before, um, it, it stays relevant forever, really. Uh, right. Because, you know, there's always going to be, uh, troubles in, in people's uh, houses and and their families, and there's always going to be conflicts to to try and resolve with your parents, and and th- that's why it stays relevant, and uh, that's why you can um, kind of like relate to it, uh, even though you may not have had a broken home like Plato or or a coward dad or a or a very ty- uh, like a like a mother that tyrant. You, you you don't have to like be the exact same, but. You know, even having troubles at home, you know, you can still kind of relate to it. Right. Exactly. Exactly.
1: So would you recommend this film to people your own age?
3: Uh, yeah, I will. I uh, I love I love the movie. Uh, it's a good movie. But I think people, if you don't know anything about it, I think you should go into this movie uh, not reading about it at all, because it when you don't know anything about it, it really is weird watching it. Right I think I got the best experience out of it uh, not knowing anything about it really and only knowing like a few of the characters or uh, actors and you know not knowing what it's about or or any of the facts about it or, or really anything compared to what it, it really is. I think going into it not knowing anything is the best way to go about it because you ruin the movie for yourself reading about it beforehand.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I agree 100%. I mean this movie is classic, it's iconic. And you know, we highly recommend folks out there that are listening that you not only watch this film, but you show it to a younger person and uh, get their take on it. Because I think every every decade, every young person can identify with Rebel Without a Cause from 1955. So, Lucas, thank you once again so much for joining me today, and I, I look forward to talking to you again about another movie in the future.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I definitely look forward to you recommending a movie that I should watch, and then us discussing it and. Uh... You know, it's it's been it's been great being on here.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's all the time we have today for Then Is Now podcast. We hope you learned a lot about Rebel Without a Cause and we encourage you to seek the film out. Remember, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening podcast network. So be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so visit youtube.com user UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos, as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page, and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends, and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from, and leave us a great review, so more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially The Big Three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed.
3: venice now podcast is intended for entertainment educational and informational purposes only sounds music and clips play during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders all original content is copyright jupiter media